The city's NASCAR deal will allow Lollapalooza-sized crowds, but potentially for a slimmer return. Documents obtained by Cranes through Freedom of Information Act requests shed light on the deals between City Hall and organizers of both NASCAR and Lollapalooza. And data reveals that Illinois saw the fifth highest number of gun deaths in the U.S. in 2021. Not the highest, but nonetheless, strategies put in place by New York and Los Angeles have helped curb gun violence. I'll talk with Crane's researcher Sophie Rogers about strategies the city and state can learn from those metro areas. Policing centered around a data-driven environment helped the police do a better job of clearance and closure And as a result, it improved community trust and it helped break a retaliatory cycle. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Wednesday, August 10th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. There's a political narrative that Chicago is the most violent, and that's not totally accurate. Illinois, in fact, had the fifth highest number of gun deaths in the U.S. in 2021. But nonetheless, strategies by New York and Los Angeles have made a dent in gun violence. So what can Chicago learn from those other major metro areas? I'm joined by Crane's researcher, Sophie Rogers, to talk it through. Sophie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks, Amy. So tell me about this data that you examined and the experts that you spoke with about this. I first began my research just by looking at publicly available data. So I first looked at provisional data provided by the CDC for total number of firearm deaths per state in 2021. And yeah, that's where we see that Illinois had, mind you, this is a provisional, but there were 1,999 gun deaths in 2021. So we were only the fifth highest in the U.S. And then I looked at data provided uh, through the FBI regarding firearm background checks. And actually, Illinois leads the way with that. Um, In 2021, we had 8.5 million firearm background checks. And uh, so far this year, we've had 2.1 million So after that, I then looked at data that was provided by uh, the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office, and there I was able to see strictly gun-related homicides since 2015. And within that data, I was able to break it down because it was at first, just Cook County. So I was able to find some numbers uh, if we were only looking at Chicago zip codes. Lastly, I gathered data from the University of Chicago Crime Lab, and those were the two experts that I spoke with, um, Rosanna Ander and 
David Leitzen, both from UChicago's Crime Lab. And, and what do they have to say in terms of why Chicago is, is different in this way, that there's here's a relatively high number of background checks and yet also, a, you know, Illinois having the fifth highest number of gun deaths in the U.S.? How did they reconcile those those numbers? Oh, Rosanna Ander offered a few plausible hypotheses. Um, she noted that New York City and Los Angeles have invested more and more consistently in a data-driven way and for a longer period of time in non-enforcement services. And these outreach programs really emphasize prevention and intervention, and they invest a lot of money and time in these communities with the highest levels of violence. So these strategies have been implemented by um, the cities to complement the police and not replace them. Yeah. And then another plausible hypothesis is just the quality of policing. Um, She noted that as New York's and Los Angeles's improved policing centered around a data-driven environment helped the police do a better job of clearance and closure. And as a result, it improved community trust and it helped break a retaliatory cycle. So Rosanna's words, not mine, but she noted that we continue to see vestiges of the machine, which could be true. And as a result of that, it might mean that we see promotions that don't necessarily reflect quality of work performance. And did either of the experts that you spoke with, did either of them kind of comment on, you know, there's a political narrative that Chicago is just the most dangerous place. But in fact, data says otherwise. I believe it was Texas that, that leads the way, in fact, for the most gun deaths by state. Did either of them kind of comment on how that narrative or the perception of gun violence might be kind of making the problem worse or complicating solutions to it? No, uh, that really wasn't discussed. But, you know, in my own research, we do see a narrative, a lot of political leaders who don't support stronger gun regulation. And they point to Chicago as this example of, okay, Illinois has vigorous gun safety laws, but look at Chicago, look at all the crime they have. Well, Chicago or Illinois in general is actually surrounded by states that don't have a lot of gun regulation, such as Indiana and Wisconsin. So we're really only as strong as our weakest link, right? Like there's always going to be a way to get guns and whether it's legally or illegally, it doesn't help that we are surrounded by other communities that don't have strong gun laws. So in addition to police reform or reforming some police strategies and and implementing things like non-enforcement strategies uh, or non-enforcement services, what other kinds of programs have Los Angeles and and New York really leaned on and seen results from? Well, Rosanna pointed to Los Angeles's grid system 
as a primary example of what effective non-enforcement services look like. So GRID stands for Gang Reduction and Youth Development. And this program has services in 23 designated areas of the city. And those are 23 of the most vulnerable and most violent communities. And they serve to both prevent and intervene with joining gangs. So the program uh, works to prevent gang joining among uh, youth around the ages 10 through 15, and then to reduce gang embeddedness among people ages 14 through 25. And and so these strategies that are in place in New York and Los Angeles, it's not like we haven't done anything here. So what strategies has Chicago tried that, that perhaps have, have been effective so far? So since the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, the city of Chicago created something called the Community Safety Coordination Center, the CSCC, which aims to fight against gun violence, also using data and community-driven strategies. If you look on their website, it's really a lessons learned from COVID-19 programs. So it's still very new. And I don't think anyone expects a program like this to work overnight. But I would be very interested in seeing data six months from now, a year from now, seeing how this one program has done uh, for gun violence in the city. Has it effectively reduced gun-related homicides? I like that's such a mic drop. I hate to even ask you anything else. You know, the beginning of my story does really focus on the fact that, like, Chicago's homicide rate was three times higher than L.A.'s and more than five times higher than New York City's. Yeah. For everybody listening, head to chicagobusiness.com and look at this chart. It is really compelling. You can visually see that the rates of Chicago, New York, and L.A. were pretty on par with each other. There were a few outliers in the data, like... If you look at the 1920s, Chicago had a higher homicide rate during Prohibition. But then, you know, the 70s, 80s, things were pretty on par. 90s, we spiked. Um, but it, it really isn't until now and until recent years that New York and L.A.'s rates have really taken a dip and Chicago's just keeps rising higher and higher. You see right around like 2000, between 2000 and 2010, L.A. and New York really start dropping big time. I mean, even in the 90s, you start to see this decline. But after about 2010, you see a very different story in Chicago. According to the experts, there was a massive uh, increase in homicides in Chicago centered around um, the death of uh, George Floyd. So, you know, 2020 was a historic year in so many different ways. So that's really when it started. It was kind of pandemic tied. It wasn't, it almost looks on the chart because it's, you're looking at a hundred years. It almost, it's, it's kind of looks like vaguely between 2010 and 2020, but that's really when it started. It was right around the time of, of the pandemic and, and civil unrest related to George Floyd's murder. Right, exactly. And, you know, COVID obviously didn't help things because 
any existing community outreach organizations at that time weren't as active because, you know, the whole world was shutting down. Because no one was active at that time. Right. Really, my thesis at first was, you know, Chicago's always had violence. It's inevitable. We're the third largest city in the U.S., but, you know, now this violent crime is spilling into areas that have been previously deemed immune. And now we're hearing about it more. So, you know, will Chicago show commitment and empathy to the vulnerable communities that are actually impacted most? And I think those are, are the big questions. And I'm sure we'll be talking about this topic many more times down the road. For now, thanks so much, Sophie. Appreciate your time talking this one through. Yeah, of course. Coming up, Mayor Lightfoot has announced a $422 million renewable energy deal aimed at powering the city's buildings with 100% renewable energy. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Are you thinking about earning your MBA? With a fully online iMBA from the University of Illinois Geese College of Business, you can earn your degree on your schedule without ever leaving your home. You'll learn from Geese College of Business's top faculty and build a global network of experienced peers. At an all-in cost of $23,000, it's no wonder the iMBA comes with a 96% student satisfaction rate. To learn more, visit onlinemba.illinois.edu. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's political columnist Greg Hines reported that the proposed Grant Park NASCAR race could see as many as 100,000 people a day in the park under the contract signed between the Chicago Park District and the racing company. That's roughly the size of Lollapalooza's daily attendance, with NASCAR getting exclusive use of everything south of Monroe for nine days before and three days after the race. While the deal is initially for three years, 2023, 24, and 25, it also includes two one-year option extensions for 2026 and 27, and NASCAR gets the right to sell sponsorship signage throughout the park. Under the contract obtained by Cranes through a Freedom of Information Act request, NASCAR will pay the Chicago Park District $550,000 in 2023 and 2024 for exclusive use of much of Grant Park and $605,000 in 2025. And as Cranes previously reported, the Park District will get $2 for every ticket sold, excluding VIP and corporate suites, and a rising percentage of concessions and merchandise sales, which will include two races each weekend and a fan festival that is likely to include concerts as the contract grants NASCAR access to the Petrillo Bandshell on Wednesday through Sunday of race week. Meanwhile, on the Lollapalooza side, a term sheet released by the city shows that the two sides agreed to stricter limits on competing music festivals taking place in Grant Park for the next decade. Hines reported that in the term summary sheet for the new 10-year contract between Lollapalooza organizer C3 Presents and the Chicago Park District, which was also obtained by Cranes on Monday, the district will get varying percentages of the full revenue stream that Lollapalooza provides, including admission, concessions, and merchandise, licensing revenue, sponsorship revenue, and replay or streaming revenue. And while C3 Presents did not have to commit to a full renovation and upkeep of the festival grounds, it will be required to pay $100,000 to renovate tennis courts it uses for parking. 
Meanwhile, the NASCAR contract doesn't specify what repairs NASCAR will have to pay for at the conclusion of the event, but the company will lay down a $50,000 security deposit, and officials from both parties will tour the site before and after the event with a third-party contractor, who will submit a damage and restoration estimate. Chicago-based real estate appraiser Cushman and Wakefield relinquished close to 36,000 documents related to Trump Organization properties to the New York Attorney General. That according to NBC News. The Attorney General's office is conducting a civil probe of the former president's organization and its business dealings. Cushman and Wakefield, based in Chicago, was held in contempt last month by New York Supreme Court Justice Arthur Angeron after refusing to hand over documents subpoenaed by New York Attorney General Letitia James in September of 2021 and again this past February. Until the firm complied, it was potentially facing fines of $10,000 a day. On Friday, James' office wrote to the judge that it received the documents and requested that the court dissolve the contempt order and hold any contempt purged without any fines due or owing. Groupon is laying off about 500 of its workers, or about 15 percent of its staff, as part of an effort to cut $150 million in annual costs. Crane's John Pletz reported that about 300 of those losing their jobs are technically based in Illinois, although it's hard to know how many live here due to remote work. After all of the laid-off workers have left the company in October, Groupon will have about 800 jobs left in Illinois, or about half the number it employed two years ago. The company said most of the layoffs will be in technology, North American sales, and its merchandise business in Australia. Before the layoffs, Groupon had over 3,400 workers around the world. Pletz noted in his reporting that part of Groupon's cost-cutting strategy will involve automation as the company moves toward a long-term goal of allowing merchants to create their own deals. Groupon pioneered the business of allowing businesses to attract customers by offering deep discounts on food, services, and other products. Pletz noted that the company was a tech darling when it went public in late 2011, but it soon started to falter and has since struggled to find growth and profitability. After a 20-for-1 reverse stock split two years ago, Groupon avoided delisting. And the pandemic didn't help a company that's heavily dependent on in-person experiences. Pletz reported at the time that Groupon cut 2,800 jobs about two years ago. The company's revenue fell 42% in the second quarter from a year prior, and its losses grew to $90 million from $3.1 million. The company's active customers dropped 15% and units sold dropped by 28%. But as Pletz also reported, the cutbacks come as a new investor has also emerged. The company agreed to add two directors this year from Pale Fire Capital, after the hedge fund based in the Czech Republic acquired roughly 22% of Groupon's stock, eclipsing Groupon founder Eric Lefkowski as the largest shareholder with 13%. Pale Fire is the latest in a string of investors that have traded in and out of the stock, betting on a turnaround that has thus far proved elusive. During an event at the Chicago Urban League on Monday, Mayor Lori Lightfoot and the city's Department of Assets, Information and Services announced a five-year agreement with Constellation, a retail energy supplier, to purchase renewable energy for all city facilities and operations by 2025, making Chicago one of the largest U.S. cities to pledge such a move. Crane's Corley J. reported that the $422 million deal, which will start in January, will partially source its large energy uses 
images from a new solar generation installation currently being developed by Swift Current Energy in Sangamon County. According to the contract, the city will also get renewable energy credits from other sources for small and medium-sized buildings and for streetlights. The project will power Chicago Public Schools, CTA, and Chicago Housing Authority buildings with 100% renewable energy. Jay also reported that the city plans to apply for the Illinois Power Agency's Renewable Portfolio Standards Self-Direct Credit Program, which provides eligible large energy consumers with an electricity bill credit for renewable energy certification purchases from qualified wind and solar resources. Chicago has committed to reinvest its credit funds to continue the decarbonization of its own buildings and fleet, Jay also noted. As governments around the world struggle with the impacts of climate change from burning fossil fuels, big and small cities alike have been making plans to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and commit to cleaner energy. Through the initiative, according to a statement from the city, Chicago is expected to lower its carbon footprint by more than 290,000 metric tons each year, which is the equivalent to emissions associated with 62,000 passenger vehicles. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's researcher, Sophie Rogers. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.